Today I'd like to begin with a quote from Professor Bruce Ware, Professor of Theology at Southern Baptist Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. He says this, quote, Today the primary areas in which Christianity is pressured by the culture to conform are on issues of gender and sexuality. Postmoderns and ethical relativists care little about doctrinal truth claims. These seem to them innocuous, which means harmless, archaic and irrelevant to life. What they do care about, and care about with a vengeance, is whether their feminist agenda and sexual perversions are tolerated, endorsed, and expanded in an increasingly neo-pagan landscape. Because that is what they care most about. It is precisely here that Christianity is most vulnerable. To lose the battle here is to subject the church to increasing layers of departure. End quote. My friends, this is what I'd like to address today. Last week we looked at one of the, the areas of sexuality. Today I want to address the ender, this issue of gender. Particularly I want to look at male-female equality and male headship. Huge issue today. We have a massive problem on our hands today. Feminism has saturated our culture, particularly during the last 20 years. At the same time, egalitarianism has been steadily taking over to where it's now the cultural norm. And if you're wondering what in the world is egalitarianism, I know some of you may not know that. Uh, You need to be familiar with that term so that when you do read it or hear about it, you're familiar with it. I've given you a definition here from Theopedia.com. Here's what Theopedia.com says, quote, Egalitarianism is a movement based on the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society, end quote. Well, sadly, the church's classic understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about male-female role relationships is eroding away. An increasing number of evangelical publishers are publishing books that are uh, really pushing the feminist agenda and some, some of these evangelical publisher, book publishers have even gone to the point where they're excluding or refusing to print anything that is giving the other side, which is complementarianism. If you're wondering what's complementarianism, well, here's a, again a definition from Theopedia.com. Quote, complementarianism is the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other through the use of different roles and responsibilities as manifested in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. It is rooted in more literal interpretations of the creation account and the roles of men and women presented in Scripture. End quote. Well, sadly, it doesn't this whole debate and problem that we have on our hands doesn't end with the book publishers. Ministers are also embracing egalitarianism. Pastors are, and churches are embracing this, this, the, the feminist agenda. Sadly, many pastors no longer believe or teach what the Bible says about male and female roles. By God's grace, I'm not going to be named amongst those compromisers. Let's go. And and really what we need to do is we need to go back to the first book of the Bible here. Okay? And that's what I want to do today. Let's go back to the first book of the Bible to get God's view. (laughs) All right? Because that's what really matters. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. And what he says is what we should practice, right? I hope you believe that. I firmly believe that theology drives methodology. So let's go to the very first book of the Bible, which is, of course, the book of Genesis, to get God's view on the issue of biblical manhood and womanhood. Okay? By the way, I must say I'm really helpful. I must give a lot of credit and and, uh, God's thankfulness and 
And praise God for, uh, there's a certain council in the States called the, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They've got a, a good website I encourage you to go to. Uh, there's been a lot of good preaching and teaching and books written on the subject. So I, I don't claim originality for anything. So um, they've been very helpful to me, and I hope they can be to you as well. There's two very important questions I want to look at today and, and, and Lord willing, answer for you. First is, what did God intend for our manhood and womanhood at the creation? And then the second question is, what did God decree as our punishment at the fall? And and you'll see why this is important when when I get to Genesis chapter 3. But Genesis 1 and 2 are going to answer the first question, then Genesis 3 will answer the second question. So we're going to do a quick fly-through here, uh, looking at a few highlights of these three chapters. The first question is, What did God intend at creation? What did God intend at creation? Okay. Uh, Turn to Genesis 1. Look at verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Here's what the words of the living God have to say to us. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Take note of verse 26 to start with. Because in verse 26, God is announcing here his intention to make man. This important announcement, by the way, is unparalleled in the creation account. And what it's doing, it's... It, it, it's setting the stage for something that's, that is about to happen. Something great is about to happen here. And it sets the making of man, by the way, apart as a very special event. Because God didn't do this with the rest of his creation. And God's announcing his intention to make man. And in verse 26 here, we see some very important truths. It teaches the glory of man in three different ways. Number one, you notice in verse 26, God says here, let us, that is the Trinity, make man. Let us make man, he says. In verse 24, God had said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. You see a difference there? I hope you do. Verse 24 is different from verse 26. And so what is God doing here? By the sheer power of his will, God had caused the living creatures to emerge from the earth. He just speaks, and they're there. However, in the creation of man, God himself here is is acting directly and personally, which is different from the creation of the animals. So God is acting directly and personally. So how else is man great? Number two, man was created to bear the image or the likeness of God. That's what it says there in verse 26, right? Man was created to bear the image or the likeness of God. Now, what is God's image in man, you might ask? That's a good question. There's a lot of debate on that one. Uh, I, I personally think the image of God in man is the soul's uh, uh, personal reflection of God's righteous character. But I also think it goes a, a little bit farther than that. I think it also has to do with human rationality or, or conscience, because uh, animals don't have a conscience, or creativity, or relationships, and everything we are is man, which, which by the way, would, would exclude our sin nature, because, of course, God doesn't have that. So what's the point? What is the point? Well, man's unique, all right? The animals are not the same as man. We find our identity upward in God and not downward in God's creation. We are God's ruling. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So we, are, we're a, we find our identity in God. 
Sadly, too many people worship so-called Mother Nature. They, you know, they, they find their identity in, in God's creation. They worship the creation rather than the creator. Shouldn't be that way, of course, but many do. So we see that God himself acted directly and personally. We see that, that uh, we are bearing the image or the likeness of God. But, but the third point that needs to be made here from verse 26 is man has a special calling. Because God said, let man have dominion. Let man have this rule. And you say, well, what's the point here? Man stands literally, if you will, between God and the animals as God's ruling representative. You are God's ruling representative over his creation. And of course, that makes man the crown of his creation, doesn't it? You're different from your dog or your cat or your bird or any other creature you can think of. Because they're not made in God's image, you are. So verse 26 teaches some very important truths about the glory of man. As we move to verse 27, we we see here that God fulfills his purpose. Because in 26, he, he announces his purpose to make man. 27 fulfills that purpose and... He declared, in verse 26, he would do something, which, of course, was to make man. But if you look closely at verse 27, there's three lines there. At least I have three lines. Each one of those three lines is not exactly the same and and teaches a very important truth. So let's let's look at the three lines there in verse 27 and, and talk about them, okay? Line one emphasizes the divine creation of man. In other words, it tells us where we came from. Okay, and in case you didn't know, if you look at verse uh, chapter one, verse twenty-seven, it says that God created man in His own image. Okay, hopefully that's not a surprise to you. Uh, we didn't come from monkeys. We didn't come from a primeval soup. Okay, you came from God. God created you. So we came from God. But number two, line two kind of overlaps with line one. Says similar things, but you notice it's not exactly the same. The difference is it highlights the divine image in man. So we find out where we came from in the, in the first line, but now it's, it's highlighting the divine image or God's image in you. You say, what's the point? The point is that we bear a resemblance to God. Now, granted, there's a lot of things that are different, okay? Uh, We're not going to talk about those right now. But you need to understand that there is some family resemblance, so to speak, here. And then line three boldly states that there is dual sexuality. Dual sexuality. God did not make male and male. God did not make Adam and Steve. God did not make woman and woman. He clearly made man here, notice in line 3, as male and female. And since both male and female display God's glory, well, then there's, there's this equal brilliance going on here. There is equality here. God must be showing us that the sexes are equal. I think that's one of the points that God's trying to make here. Okay. And by the way, Christianity is, uh, is responsible primarily for the elevation of womanhood. Okay, You think about what it, you, you read your history, uh, you ladies didn't used to have it very good. All right? And it wasn't even that long ago you weren't even allowed to vote. Okay, It's Christianity, the truth of Christianity, showing that, that womanhood is equal with manhood, which is... He brought about your right to vote and all the under, other wonderful privileges that, that you have. But then in verse 28, God pronounces his blessing on man. In his blessing, the Creator authorizes male and female. Again, you see this equality here. The male and female together to carry out this mission, which is to rule God's creation. It's not just the man 
that is to rule over God's creation, but it's male and female working together. So again, you see this equality. My second question is this. Why did God decide to describe the human race as man? You ever wondered that? Why did God decide to describe the human race as man? Now listen closely and hear me out, okay, before you start throwing stuff at me. Let me suggest that it makes sense against the backdrop of male headship. To me, I don't, I don't see how you, you could explain that, you know, what God is trying to say here than, than against the backdrop of male headship. God's naming of the race man whispers male headship. It's not like blatantly obvious in your face, but, but it certainly is whispering it. And it's going to come out more clearly, if you will, in chapter 2 when we get there. Hopefully you'll see that. But it's important to note that God did not name the human race woman. There's a reason for that. It was Adam, by the way, who named woman, if you remember correctly. And in fact, God doesn't even use a neutral term. He could have said just persons, but he didn't. The human race by God was named man. God called us man, which of course is anticipating the male headship that's going to be brought out very clearly in chapter 2. You say, what is male headship? Okay, these might, might not be a term you're familiar with, all right? So let me be clear. Number one, let me tell you what I'm not talking about here, okay? I'm not, I'm not referring to male domination, which has happened for many centuries. And sadly, it's still happening today in some places. Uh, male domination is not godly, nor is it biblical. Okay, that's not what I'm referring to. That's not what God is referring to. God does not uh, condone male domination. So, so what's male headship? Well, I like the definition from, from the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Look, look at this definition, quote, In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction, end quote. So the man is the leader, spiritually speaking, the primary leader in the home. So that's what we're talking about here. Well, my third question is, how does Genesis 2 then teach a seemingly paradoxical truth, which is male-female equality with male headship? Do you see how that can come across as a paradox? Okay, male-female equality, but you're saying the Bible teaches male headship. Okay, I don't get it. Well, that's because we haven't got to Genesis chapter 2 yet. All right, stay with me. This should be clear by the time we're done. But what we need to do as we come to chapter 2 here, let me establish the context for you. All right, in Genesis 2, God created the man first. That's significant. That, that all goes hand-in-hand hand with the whole male headship thing here. But what did God do with the man. God put him in a garden of Eden. He stationed him in this beautiful place. He said, okay, you're to work this place. By the way, work started before the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. All right? So, so he's, he's to work the garden, develop this garden. He's to guard the garden, look after this place. He's a steward of God's property. But Look at um, verse 7 with me here, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that is. Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay? So we see God putting... The man in the garden. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So again, you see, you see there? You see the W word? The evil W word. Work is before Genesis chapter 3. All right, is that clear? God designed us to work. 
That's a blessing of God. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon, which I won't get into at the moment, but just pointing it out to you. All right, so then what does God do here? God gives two commands to the man, just, just two. <laughs> two commands, and we can see this in verse 16. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Wow, that's pretty nice. Just two commands. All right, he's got the whole garden, this beautiful, perfect place. He's perfect. God says, okay, you got everything except one thing. Just don't eat of that one tree. So what do we see here? Well, we learn several things about God. Number one, we see that God is generous. God is very generous. But we also see that man is morally responsible to obey God. God gives him two commands. And if he doesn't obey the command, what, what did God say would happen? You will die. So man was commanded to partake freely of the trees God had provided. But we also see man was commanded not to eat of one tree. So that's the scene, if you will. The, the scene has been set for you, I hope. You understand? As we come to verse 18, I wanted you to see the context because verse 18 comes along and just blindsides you. All right, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit. For him. Whoa. If this was the first time you'd ever read Genesis chapter 2, would you expect that? Uh, I wouldn't, to be frank. I mean, it just, it just blindsides you, doesn't it? You, it's like running down the field with a rugby ball and somebody just, wham, hits you really hard and you never saw the person coming. And the ball goes flying, you go flying, and you're, you're knocked out on the ground. That's kind of like what happens, right? You're reading through this and you're seeing all these beautiful, wonderful things that God has made. God keeps saying it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden God says there's something that's not good. And what is it that's not good? (laughs) It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. So what is God saying here? God's essentially saying, hey, there's something wrong with my creation. And of course, God already knew that. He's saying that man should not be alone. He understands that man needs a helper. So what is God doing here? God is, if you, if figuratively speaking, God's putting his finger on a deficiency in his creation. There's a deficiency in paradise. That's interesting. And the deficiency is that man needed a helper that was suitable for him. So what does God do next? Does God immediately create his helper? No. God puts man in a situation where he recognizes his need. Because up to this point, he didn't recognize it. Surprisingly, God didn't didn't make his helper immediately. He leaves him hanging. (laughs) If you look... um, You'll see here in, in our passage here that God actually parades the animals before Adam. And, and Adam had the responsibility of naming the animals. So he, I, I don't know exactly how this worked, but, but, you know, somehow Adam sees the animals walk by. He looks at the animals and he gives them an appropriate name that, you know, somehow matches them. So if you've ever wondered why... You know, Mr. and Mrs. Lion were appropriately named because God told, you know, worked in Adam to so-called appropriately name the animals. But anyway, you'll see what happens here is uh, God does this. Looking at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
there was not found a helper fit for him. So why did God do this? Well, the man did not yet see the problem of his aloneness until he's naming the animals. He's seeing all these Mr. and Mrs. go by, and it finally clicks. Wait a minute. There's all these Mr. and Mrs., but there's just a Mr. here. I need a Mrs. Those animals, none of, them, none of those animals are suitable for me. He, he realizes that. So in, in serving God, the man encounters his need, doesn't he? Well, what does God do next? Well, then God performs the first surgical operation. And apparently, he, God doesn't need to use anesthetic either. I mean, just God being God, he just says, you know, Adam, go to sleep, and Adam goes to sleep. And God performs the first surgical operation. If you look at verse 21, we will see this. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then after God wakes Adam up, God had already created Eve, so God brings Eve to Adam. And then in verse 23, we have the first recorded human words in the Bible. The first recorded human words in the Bible. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So these are the first recorded words, human words in the Bible. And what are they expressing? What are they saying? Excuse me. They're expressing man's joy over receiving the first woman, his helper that was fit for him. And this event, by the way, explains why we see men and women pairing off today. (laughs) Because if you look at the very next verse... Because of what God did in the beginning is why men and women today get married and pair off together. If you look at verse 24, uh, it says, Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, what, what question are you supposed to ask? What is it there for? Well, it's there because of the preceding verses. right? Because of what God did in the beginning, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, I ask you, where did marriage start? Was that somewhere along the evolutionary chain? Was that man's idea? No, it wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea. <laughs> marriage is God's idea. It started in the Garden of Eden. It, and by the way, it started before sin. So... <laughs> So there are some people who like to joke about this and say, well, marriage is a result of sin. No. (laughs) Marriage is not a result of sin, okay? So you single guys, uh, marriage jokes are not appropriate, okay? God designed marriage. Okay, you married couples. Marriage jokes are not appropriate either for you married couples. I used to work with some clowns, not literally, figurative clowns. Uh, they, they used to have all kinds of marriage jokes, which really irritated me. I, I just, I had to tell them to stop. Uh, you know, the, the ball and chain jokes and so forth, you, you've, you've probably all heard lots of those where you work and other places. Not appropriate. Okay, just not appropriate. It's not, don't even go there. Right? God designed marriage. It's a wonderful thing. Okay? Yes, sin messes it up. But, you know, we need to deal with the sin then, don't we? So marriage is not a human custom that, that changes according to our culture. Okay, governments can't just come in and invade the home and, and marriage and say, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to do what we want here. We're, oh, we're going to redefine marriage. No, governments aren't allowed to do that. They do, but they're not supposed to. Okay, God defined marriage between one man and one woman for life. God's already defined it, as we can see here. Nobody has the right to say, well, you know, culture changes. 
you know, the Bible, that's, you know, that was written a long time ago. That's irrelevant. It's archaic. Uh, so we're just going to get rid of that, and we're going to redefine things according to our new culture that we live in. So this is an institution that was created by God before sin. And by the way, it's for all ages, and it's for all cultures. So if you ever go to a different culture, a different country, uh, you know, they're going to have different beliefs, different ideas, different ways of practicing marriage and other things. So it's, it's, it's imperative that we as, as believers, we preach the Bible, we teach the Bible. Cultures conform to God's word. We don't try to wrap the Bible around our culture, right? You understand, the Bible always trumps, always. All ages, all cultures, all times, all places. So what does marriage mean? What does marriage mean? What distinguishes this particular social institution from others? (laughs) Well, marriage is the reunion of what was originally and literally one flesh. And by the way, here we have it, it's, it's in a more satisfying form though. I mean, the one flesh was Adam, all by himself. That was originally what God made, right? That was the one flesh in the beginning. But marriage is literally a, a reunion of the one flesh. But, of course, it's way more satisfying than just Adam being by himself. In other words, one man becomes a man and a wife, husband and wife. And that's why the Bible says, for example, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to be one flesh? You may have heard, those of you who are married may have heard that when you got married. You know, two become one flesh. What does that mean? Well, uh, here's, here's what um, one author said. It helps me to understand, so I'll put it on a quote up here on the screen for you. Quote, Becoming one flesh as husband and wife is symbolized and sealed by sexual union. It is true. But the one flesh relationship entails more than sex. It is the profound fusion of two lives into one. Shared life together. By the mutual consent and covenant of marriage, it is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new cycle of shared existence with one's spouse. End quote. I hope that helps you. It, it was helpful for me. So, as we look at verse 24 here, let me just point out a few things of application here, okay? For you single guys, let me just preach to you for a moment, all right? You single guys, and anybody who listens to this who might be single, um, let, let me just mention, first of all, there is, there is a gift of singleness, and sometimes God does call some people to be single, but the majority of people, God doesn't call to that area, all right? Some of you can rejoice and do the hand pumping, all right? It's a good thing. God designed most people to be married, and it's a wonderful thing, and you should look forward to that, and you should pray for your spouse, even if you don't have one yet. That's a good thing. But let me just say this, that there's plenty of in-laws jokes that fly around. Again, those aren't appropriate either. So you single guys need to, as you're looking for your spouse, you know, look, look at your in-laws, okay? This, this woman or this, this man whom you want to marry, look at your in-laws. That can be helpful, how, how does this person whom you want to get engaged to, how do they respond to their mother and father if they have one? That can be helpful. How does the mother and father you know, interrelate with the person whom you want to marry? That can be helpful. All right. uh, often what, what you see, how, you know, for example, before I got married, I watched how my wife-to-be uh, interacted with her father. Did she submit? Because if she's not submitting to her father, guess what? She's probably not going to submit to me. And that's just going to make for a very nasty relationship. (laughs) You bring that into another, make another home, wham, wham, wham. Battle, battle, battle going on, right? Not helpful, not good. Right? So, So you pray about these things. You look what's going on in the home. In verse 24, it says that the man shall leave his father and mother Sadly, that doesn't happen. It's not happening enough today. We've got a man deficit today. There's a lot of 
guys, particularly in their 20s and even going into their 30s, they need to man up and be men. Sit around playing video games too much. Don't want to commit to being what, a, what God calls a man to be. All right? So you guys who are single, I'm calling you to man up. All right? It's a good thing to, to get married and have children. Yes, that is probably the most, two, two of the most courageous things you'll ever do is get married and have children. Oh, it's scary. But it's also one of the greatest things you can do. It's what God calls us to do. Don't be afraid of it. Ask God to give you the courage to man up. For those of you who are married, may I remind you, it says here in verse 24, that the man shall leave his father and mother. And by the way, that also means that the daughter, okay, not just the man, but the woman as well, is also to leave father and mother. Yes, you will always have a mother and father as long as they live, but too often the mother and the father refuse to cut the apron strings of their children. They, they want to rule their children's home, even after they get married. That's ungodly. It's unbiblical. Okay? Mother, there, there shouldn't be mother-in-law jokes. Why are there mother-in-law jokes? Because too many mother-in-laws have a heavy hand and are trying to rule their children's homes. shouldn't be that way. Who is to rule the home? The husband, the father, the man. Okay? If, if, I mean, one of the reasons I love having my parents in my home when they come here is because it's not an issue. They know I'm the head of the home, and they submit to my leadership. We don't have mother-in-law jokes or in-law jokes in my home because we love, I love having the in-laws. They come into my home, they submit to my authority because it's my house. <laughs> I determine what food is eaten, what goes on, how to spend the money. They don't tell me any of that sort of stuff. They don't tell me when to get up, where to go, what to do. Okay, I'm just being practical here. If you look at verse 24, God says that the man is to leave. Okay? And once your children, by the way, those of you who, are, who, who have children who have been married or going to be married, you need to let them go. Take your hands off. You need to realize there's somebody else's problem now. <laughs> In fact, I had a great picture when I got married. When I got married, um, we actually did a picture where Lori is handing her father's credit card back to her, and then I'm handing my credit card to Lori. You say, why did we do that? It was just symbolic of, okay, my father-in-law gets his money back, and I get the responsibility of now looking after my wife. It's not his. He doesn't tell her what to do anymore. She no longer has to submit to him. Now she submits to me. Right? It was just a symbolic thing. It was kind of funny, too. Right? But that's what happens. Right? It's, it's no longer, you know, me. It's now us, me and my wife. We're now one flesh. My money is hers, and her money is hers. That's, that's how it works. That's a joke as well. But anyway. But they become one flesh, it says. They become one flesh. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of practical application there. Just, we need to be aware of. So those of you who have children about to be married or children who are married, hands off. Right? The husband in that family is the primary leader, not you. Okay, we're partly responsible for the in-law jokes. Shouldn't be that way, but it is. All right, if you look at the next verse, the next verse actually finishes the creation account. In verse 25, we have a reminder of the perfection here in which Adam and Eve first came together. They were perfect. How do we know they're perfect? Well, look what verse 25 says. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why did God put that in the Bible? Because he's showing their perfect state, for one thing. They, had, they felt absolutely no shame, God says. They're living in a perfect world, feeling no shame. Why? Because they had absolutely nothing to hide. They're living in perfect integrity with one another. That, I think that's one of the reasons why God put that there. Of course, it all changes later on. So, was Eve Adam's equal? Okay, lest, lest you, you're 
getting sidetracked here, let me come back to one of our main points. Was Eve Adam's equal? And the answer is yes and no. You say, oh, man, shake your head. What? Yes and no? Yes. Yes and no. She was his spiritual equal, but she was not as equal in all ways because the Bible says that she was his helper. Right? God calls Eve Adam's helper. So here we see that God obviously created different roles. There's different functions for women to play than for men to play. Different functions. God designed different roles and functions. A man's called to lead, and a woman's called to help. By the way, that's not degrading. Okay, don't let the, fem- the feminist you know, put their propaganda on you and say, well, that's degrading. No, that's the way God designed it. And it all is a beautiful thing, a work of art in progress, when, it is, when everybody is fulfilling their divine roles. It's beautiful. It works well. <laughs> well, sadly, there's two viruses attacking our sexuality today. The two viruses, you say, well, what, what are those? They're male domination and feminism. Male domination and feminism are attacking our culture, our society. They vandalize God's creation. They multiply human misery. A lot of the problems we have today are, are the result of those two viruses. And what's causing these viruses is a lost understanding of male headship. People don't understand what the Bible says. They're not fulfilling their God-given roles. So it's no wonder we got all kinds of conflict and misery going on today. Question number four for you. How did our fall into sin affect God's original ordering of the sexes? Because I ask this question because in the midst of my reading, I've come across some, some uh, evangelical theologians who are pushing the feminist agenda, saying that, you know, what, what, you know this, this whole idea of male headship is a result of the fall of Genesis chapter 3. Really? What Bible are they reading? Not the same one I'm reading. They, they're, they're taking Scripture, trying to use Scripture to prove their point. Well, let, let's talk about this. How did our fall into sin affect God's original ordering of the sexes? Well, let me point this out to you as we come to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, of, of course, is one of the most crucial chapters of scripture if you were to suddenly remove genesis 3 from the bible the, frankly the bible would no longer make sense life would no longer make sense if we all start at started out in a state of edenic bliss why is life so painful now i mean how would you answer that without genesis 3 why is life painful if you, if you don't have Genesis 3, how do you answer that question? Genesis 3 explains why. And if something's gone terribly wrong, then we've got to ask the question, is there any hope for restoration? And Genesis 3 also gives us hope. Well, in the first few verses, we see that Satan is concealed in the form of this snake, the serpent. And he tempts Eve to doubt God, he's, he's planting this unbelief in her mind, and sadly, she, she's deceived. She reconsiders her life, and uh, she shouldn't have done that, but anyway, she, she did. I want you to see what happens here in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Let me make a few comments as we go along here through Genesis 3. What actually happened here is really full of meaning. Very easy for us to read this very familiar story 
and miss some very uh, subtle but very important points. Number one is Eve usurped Adam's headship. She usurped Adam's headship. She's actually leading the way into sin here. And what is Adam doing? Adam's there, by the way, because it says so. Adam is passively standing by. He's allowing this deception to progress to the point where Eve is deceived. And he's not, he's not jumping in and intervening. He should have. That's his job. He's to lead. God designed him to lead, and he's not intervening. He's being one of these passive men that we see so common today in our society. So what did Adam do? Well, he essentially abandoned his post as head. He abandoned it. Didn't do what God designed him to do. And in the process, Eve was deceived. And as a result, both were wrong. And, and guess what? Together, what did they do? They pulled the whole human race down into sin and death. By the way, don't blame them too much because you would have done the same thing. But isn't it striking, as, as you look at this here, isn't it striking that we fell upon an occasion of sex role reversals? We have sex role reversal going on here. Adam's not being the male head. He's abdicating that role, letting Eve take the head, and disaster ensued. So when we see what happened, uh, what, when we see what happened next, it, it leads us to some questions here. Why does Genesis 3 say that it was only after Adam joined in the rebellion that the eyes of both of them were opened to their condition? Well, I'll answer that in a moment. But here's another question. Why does then God call out Adam? Why did he call out to Adam? I mean, God comes, as he often did, he comes to the garden, and he calls out to Adam. Why doesn't God summon both Adam and Eve to account together? Well, if you look at verse 7, it's, let's talk about this, starting in verse 7 here, okay? Verse 7 says, In the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Do you see that in verse 9? Who is God calling to? He's calling out to the man. And he says, where are you? By the way, he knew where he was. But do you see here that Adam is the one who bore the primary responsibility to lead in this partnership? He, he's to lead in a God-glorifying direction, but, which of course he didn't do. Next, we also see here, if you look at verse 14, that God actually curses the serpent. Look at verse 14. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the curse upon the serpent or the snake. By the way, verse 15 is, is uh, what's often called the proto-evangelism. It's, it's, it's a gospel in a, in a little different way, isn't it? It's a prophecy is another way of looking at verse 15 that one day the second Adam would come and crush the serpent. Now, if you look at verse 16, we see the curse on the woman. And then I'll say some important points about verse 16. It says, To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. By the way, verse 16 there is where the, these evangelical feminists get this idea that you know, you know, this male domination and ruling over women is, is a result of sin, the fall. They, they kind of get it from this verse here. But anyway, let me just say a few things about the curse to the woman. Eve's curse comes in two points. 
it's twofold. Number one, we see it as a, as a mother, and then we also see it as a wife. In regards to the mother, what do we see here? The woman's going to suffer in her relation to her children. She, having children is not a result of sin, okay? We understand that, I hope. Uh, so having children is not a part of the curse. That, that was something before the curse. But what's different here is now giving birth to children is not the nicest experience, is it? Right? I've gone through that three times. Not personally, but I've been in the room. Okay? It's not, it's not nice. I don't, I don't like experiencing that. And I'm sure you ladies, you know, there's, there's aspects of it you don't enjoy either. Why is that? It's because of sin. But there's also another part of the curse, and that comes to the wife. And it says that here, that, that the, this woman, this wife's going to suffer in relationship to her husband. Now, either she's going to suffer conflict with her husband, that's one of the interpretations, or she's going to suffer domination by her husband. That's also another interpretation. I, I think it's probably both. Uh, while many women today need release from male domination, the liberating alternative, by the way, is not female rivalry. <laughs> it's not autonomy. The, the solution is male headship that is wedded to the female being the helper God has designed her to be. That's the solution. So wives need to practice godly submission and husbands need to practice godly headship. That's the solution. Next we see that Adam is cursed by God. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's four things in, in these three verses I want to talk about. Number one, work is not Adam's punishment. Okay, Again, work was something Adam did before the fall. Uh, the new element is his pain in working the ground. It's obviously harder than it used to be when, when everything was perfect. And the other thing is that, that it's, it's kind of futile. It, he's ultimately going to be defeated. After a lifetime of survival by hard work, what happens to us? We all go back to the ground from which we came. That, that's what God's saying here. So ultimately, we're defeated by it. We're swallowed up in death. Second, Adam sinned at two levels here. Number one, at one level, he defied the plain command, which was not to eat of that one tree, and he did, so he disobeyed God. But then at another level, if, we, if you look at God's words of what he said here, did you notice that God says that Adam sinned by listening to his wife? By the way, guys, don't use that as an excuse for male domination. That's not the point. The point is, Adam abdicated his role as head. He listened to his wife. She was deceived, and she took the authority and led them into sin. It was supposed to be male headship, not female headship. But sadly, she was taking the, the role that God had designed for her. So that, the second level is there is he's listening to his wife. He's abandoned his headship. So according to God's opinion, Adam's moral failure is what led to the downfall. God said that, not me, by the way. But number three, God does not address Eve here in the same way he addressed Adam. God addresses Adam with this statement. He says, because you have listened. Why? Why, why did God say that? Because Adam was the head. He's ultimately responsible for this partnership. But he's not being the head. He disobeyed God. And so his disobedience was the pivotal factor in the fall here. 
which is why he is the, the, the representative head in the book of Romans. Number four, God told Adam alone that he would die, but the Bible says that Eve died too, right? Of course he did. Why then did God pronounce the death sentence on Adam alone? Well, the answer to that is because as the head goes, so goes the body. Adam's the head. God doesn't need to tell what's going to happen to Eve because Adam's the representative as the head. So as he goes, so goes the rest of the human race. Okay, do you see male headship here? It's all over the place. It's, it, it's just crying out to us. All right, well, what does this mean for us? Because some of you might be sitting here thinking, you know, I'm not Adam and I'm not Eve, so who cares? <laughs> so what does this mean for us? It means a lot for us. Because all of these curses are horrible and they affect you. So this, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is you. This is your life. Under these conditions, our pain alerts us to a great truth. And you say, what truth? Uh, are you ready? There's a great truth that just cries out. Here it is. This life is not our fulfillment. Did you hear me, my friend? This life is not your fulfillment. It never was meant to be your fulfillment. This life wasn't meant to be your final experience. And despite what well-known, what well-known pastor wrote, he wrote a book entitled your best life now. This is not your best life now. If you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, this is your best life because the worst is yet to come. My friend, if you're a believer, this is not your best life. This is not the final experience. Read the book of Revelation. That will be. Eternity is the final experience. So our pain and our limitations are there for a reason. They're, they're to point us to God, to, to the eternal to set our affections on things above and not on the earth. The eternal is where our true fulfillment lies. With God is where our true fulfillment lies. And if you try to fulfill, find the fulfillment in this life, my friend, you'll keep coming to closed doors. You'll keep being frustrated. You, you You will come to a point where so many other people come to when they find this life cannot fulfillment can, cannot fulfill them, what do they do? They commit suicide. They're looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And by the way, I think Adam understood this truth. I really think he did. You say, why do you say this? Well, look at verse 20. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. After all these curses, we come to verse 20, and it says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You say, I don't get it. Some of you may not get the point. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain this first of all. If you back up to verse 15, we need to understand the only gospel that Adam heard was in verse 15. But what does he do with that? He believes it. And he was obviously saved. Now, how do we know he believed it? Because instead of becoming bitter like we often do, you know, we get, we get all these curses and bad news, we become bitter, we get, you know, depressed. Adam didn't do that, did he? In fact, he calls his wife's name Eve, by the way, which means life or life giver. God had said that Adam and Eve would die. I mean, why would you name your wife life after being cursed with death? Because Adam's believing God. God had said that Adam and Eve would die, and by the way, he did die, physically speaking, 930 years. (laughs) But he also died spiritually at that moment, which is even worse than physical death. And in that, he was separated from God. That was his worst problem. Why was he separated God? He was separated from God because of his sin. And God promised the birth of a Savior here in verse 15. It was through the woman, and Adam obviously believes God's promise and was saved. However, God did not change the physical consequences of sin. Let me remind you, there are consequences for sin. 
Okay? You cannot come to God and confess your sin and expect to be freed from all the consequences. But he was forgiven of the eternal consequences. We also see here that there were coats of skins that were made for Adam and Eve. And by the way, who is the first person who ever killed anything? God did. God was the first person to ever kill an animal. He makes these skins out of at least one animal here. And by the way, skins are pictures of salvation. If you look at verse 21, we see what happens. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There must be the shedding of blood, the Bible says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The offering of the innocent life has to be made for the guilty. God is showing that even from the beginning here. That's not something new with the law. It's always been this way. Adam and Eve, what did they do, though? After they sinned, what do they, they, they run and they try to cover themselves using leaves. They're ashamed. The Bible makes it quite clear that good works don't save us. We cannot be accepted by God through our own works. By the way, it's the same today. Same today. We, we, try, to, we try to cover our shame, cover our sin. We try to deal with our sin. We try to do good works. And guess what? That will never get us to heaven. It doesn't deal with the sin problem. God's the one who has to deal with it. By the way, garments in the Bible are often a picture of salvation. That's why the Bible talks about robes of righteousness given to us by Christ. Note that God wanted Adam and Eve to be covered here. Okay, That's a little side point. But, and we know this because what does he do here? He actually approves of their sense of shame. And he gives them a covering. So, so you look at our culture, too often our culture wants to throw off the clothing. Right? That's not a good thing, my friend. <laughs> That's actually a sign of degeneration when people reverse the order here and they go back to the nakedness. That's because they're not understanding their nakedness, their shame, their sin. Cl- covering up the shame and the nakedness is a good thing. Well, God does something strange here at the end of verse, or chapter 3. Look at verse 22. Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is God doing here? He drives the man and the woman out of the Garden of Eden. What's God doing? He's showing His grace. Why? Because they had forfeited the right to the tree of life. How'd they do that? By disobeying God. If they had eaten of that tree, they would have been in big trouble. They would have lived forever. And then Christ couldn't have come to pay the penalty for their sin. They would live forever in their sinful state. But God was gracious to them. He kicks them out of the garden. He takes the tree so that they can't eat of the tree of life. By the way, you read the book of Revelation. The tree of life is in heaven. Anyway, that's another message. So what do we see here? We see a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. This means that the Savior, who is the second Adam could now come and die to deliver humans from their greatest problem, which is their sin. So in driving Adam and Eve out of paradise, God was showing His grace and His mercy to the entire human race. And you see this idea backed up in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a contrast going on in those passages between the first Adam and the second Adam. We see that... uh, Adam was made from the earth, but Christ came down from heaven. Adam was tempted in a perfect garden while Christ was tempted in the wilderness. Adam deliberately disobeyed and plunged the human race into sin and death, but Christ obeyed God and brought righteousness. Go back, you can read those passages. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. So yes, Adam 
brought death and sin, but Christ brought life and righteousness, provided the only way of salvation that's possible. Without him, my friend, we have no hope. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman who came and crushed Satan's head, who crushed death when he rose again. My friend, we must put our full trust and our full belief in him and in him alone. Without him, there is no hope. My friend, we must believe in male headship. We must practice Male headship in our homes, we must practice male headship in the church, we must practice male headship in our culture, in our society. Without it, there's only going to be conflict and misery. Do you believe God? I guess that's the issue. Do you believe that Scripture is the final authority for all of faith and practice? That's that's where it comes down to, doesn't it? What is our authority? Is it our own human wisdom? If it is, you're going to have conflict, or is it God in his word? My friend, believe God. 